0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles with you. First of all, to Psalm 130. I want to read Psalm 130 with you in connection with the Lord's Day 1. Question and answer 2. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, or yea, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy. With him there is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Thus far. Then would you turn with me to the Heidelberg Catechism in the back of your Psalter hymnal, page 872. Lord's Day 1. I want to return to Lord's Day 1. You remember last week we did Lord's Day 1 question and answer 1. This afternoon, I want to do Lord's Day 1, Question and Answer 2. Lord's Day 1, Question and Answer 2, and I remind you that this is your your own confession of faith as it is mine. And here, congregation, we are asked, but congregation, how many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? This comfort was, of course, is what is your only comfort? That I belong to Christ. And then the question follows, what must you know in order to live and to die in the joy of that comfort? Three, first, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and, and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. I must know three things, how great my sin and misery are, how I am delivered from my sins, and how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word as we find it summarized in the creeds and confessions of the church. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will remember, hopefully, last week Sunday that Lord's Day 1, question and answer 1 set before us that great great and mysterious things we were taught there of a comfort necessary for life and but also sufficient for death. But having learned that such comfort is indeed available, then out of necessity the question has to now arise in our hearts how? How does this comfort become ours personally? Knowing that such comfort in life and death exists is wonderful. But it is of absolutely no value to us if it is not ours. And therefore, if we are to benefit from having such comfort, we must not only know of it, we must own it. It must be our own possession. And therefore, the next logical question has to be, how can that quiet, trusting heart, how can that comfort become our own possession? And the confession before us this afternoon points us the way. We learned here this afternoon how this only comfort becomes ours. We've heard of the only comfort in life and in death last week. Now we're going to learn how that only comfort belongs, becomes ours. We will learn of a threefold mystery, first of all. Then we will learn of two ways. And finally, we want to learn of a singleness of heart. So, how does it become ours? A threefold mystery will be taught us. We will learn of two ways. And finally, we will learn of a singleness of heart the question reads what must I know notice now with me that three times that little word how is used in the answer read it again with me what must I know I must know how great my sin and misery are I must know how I have been delivered from my sin and misery and then finally I must know how I am to express gratitude for my deliverance and as we continue, Lord willing, over the coming Sundays, as we continue on our series on the Catechism, we'll notice that the entire Catechism from Lord's Day 2 through to Lord's Day 52 is devoted entirely to an explanation of these three things. Lord's Day 2 through 52 is devoted entirely to explaining those three things. I refer to that a little bit this morning, but Lord's Day 2 through 4 speaks of the knowledge of sin. Lord's Day 5 through 31 speaks of the knowledge of salvation. And then Lord's Day 32 through 52 teaches us of service or a life of gratitude. So first of all, then, the knowledge of sin. What most you know? How great my sins and misery are. And, and congregation, we need to understand here that the way to true Christian comfort is inextricably connected to the knowledge of sin, That principle is so clear. Even a child can understand it. If someone does not know himself to be sick, he will not feel compelled to go to see a doctor. In the same way, one who has no knowledge of sin will not see the need of a Savior. Why would you look for a Savior if you have no understanding of what you need to be saved from? And yet, although that in itself is readily understood, what is not so easily accepted is that this knowledge of our sin is a mystery when left up to ourselves to discover. The solution will escape us unto our dying breath, for even our sinfulness is a mystery which must be divinely revealed to us by the very Spirit of God. And Congress is now in this way, that, at this very juncture, that you can distinguish authentic Christianity from all that represents itself as being Christian, but which in reality is a counterfeit Christianity. Walk into any Christian bookstore, if you will, and what do you find? You will find row upon row upon row of books, all purporting to show you the way to Christian happiness. But look specifically for any book which deals with the sin of mankind and you will be hard-pressed to find any at all. But then should you be fortunate enough to happen upon one, you will again be dismayed and then disappointed to discover that in all likelihood it would have you know how that a knowledge of sin and misery is, is, it is to know that is either counterproductive or it is something you can discover for yourselves. So much of contemporary Christianity, contemporary means current Christianity, speaks of a man who is intellectually wise and inherently good. Man, we're told, is able to pull himself up by his own bootstraps, and man is able in and of himself to become aware of the things he needs to know in order to have peace with God. My pastor's heart is pained. In fact, it is burdened. When I see row upon row upon row of self-help books teaching the steps by which one can find peace with God and how foreign such methods are to the Bible. That's not the language of the Bible. The scripture wants us to know that the only way, the only way we can know of our sin and misery is when that is given us to know by God himself. If you read the question and the answer of our confession, then it needs to strike us that the Catechism does not talk about our sins, plural. No, it tells us that we need to know of how great our sin, singular, how great our sin is. And that distinction, I believe, is significant. We are inclined to consider the seriousness of our sins, we would consider them and we would still we, we could list them. Just as we could count our many blessings, we're, we're inclined here to count our many sins, to name them one by one. And that is, of course, necessary when confessing our sin. But that's not what we are to learn here about knowing our sin. Here we talk about sin in the singular. In other words, the Catechism insists that we know, first of all, that we know, first of all, not that we are sinful uh, or that we are, have sins needed to be, forgive, be forgiven, but that we need to know that we ourselves are sin. From the top of our heads to the tip of our toes, inside and out, we are sin. Capture this with me. Our lost condition consists of not that we have done this or that, or have failed to do this or that. No. The seriousness of our sin consists of the fact that being born of Adam's race, God's righteous judgment and condemnation rests on us for time and eternity. We stand condemned by the virtue of our birth. That's my sin and misery and yours. People got, think with me. Remember the last time, and it was fairly recent, but remember with me the last time that we stood at the baptismal font. I believe it was last week or two weeks ago, but it was very recent. We stood at the baptismal font. Do you remember what was asked of the parents? Do you remember that the parents were asked, do you believe that this child is conceived and born in sin and therefore subject to all manner of misery, yea, to condemnation itself? In other words, in other words, do you believe that this precious little child, a child of only several days or at least a couple of weeks at the most, is already lost? That this little child stands condemned simply by virtue of its birth as a member of Adam's fallen race. And the parents answered, Yes, we do so believe. And the question to us now this afternoon is: do we understand that mystery? Have we learned to know a heartfelt sorrow for our sinful condition? That's the question, first of all, and, and, and people go, I struggle for words and phrases here as I attempt to convey this to you. The question here is not yet, are you sorry for your sin? That question will be dealt with later on, but that's not the proper question in this context. The question here is, have you recognized that because of your inherited sin, you have come into this world as sin, and that as consequent, apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope for you? That's the question confronting us, first of all. And my dear people, it is now for that reason that we cannot tell the gospel. We cannot preach the gospel without beginning at the fall. We cannot tell the Christmas story, nor the Easter story. We cannot bring others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ without beginning in paradise. Again, in this context, we shudder at many of the Christian books written to assist man in his search for Christianity. Modern psychologies convince contemporary Christianity that that any discussion on the matter of sin is counterproductive. And men like the late Robert Schuller and many other contemporary authors of Christian literature and Christian other gurus carefully and intentionally avoid any reference to man's lost and sinful condition by birth. And consequently, it is the burden of my heart that these books are indeed helpful but not in the sense that they help men and women on the road to God. On the contrary, they may indeed be helpful in ushering unsuspecting souls into hell because they consciously and intentionally obscure one of the three things absolutely necessary to salvation, namely a consciousness of sin. What if you would earnestly seek and find God? you must first of all be taught to understand of the wrath of God that rests on us and remains upon us apart from Christ as a result of the fall in paradise. It's only after learning of man's hopelessness and his lost condition because of paradise that the soul begins to understand also the first stirrings of this comfort of which the Catechism speaks. Allow me an illustration here for a moment to hopefully assist us in our understanding. Imagine in your mind a person who is experiencing great turmoil in his heart and his soul. He finds himself, as it were, he finds himself at the bottom of a pit and he knows of no way of escape. He knows not how to unburden himself or his anxiety. He cries out for help. And now, going back to our comments earlier, modern Christianity gives him a modern self-help book. And the advice he receives there tells him of the, the steps he can take to rid himself of his burden. Contemporary... Arminian Christianity advises him to do the right things and you will be made well. But after having advised the suffering man, it leaves him for that is all it has to offer and man is still lost in that pit. But the scriptures wants us to know of a different way. The scriptures teach us that after all of the self-help and pop psychology has attempted but failed to bring the necessary relief, a cry to God in Christ is the answer. For Christ hears the cry of the anxious man. Christ walks over to that pit. He sees that man in his despair. And Christ climbs down into that pit, goes down to the man, embraces him and lifts him up and sets his feet back on solid ground. People of God, do you see it? If man is to be relieved of the burden of his sin, if man is to experience this only comfort, it has to be granted him by the very presence of Christ. We cannot make it our own. It is a gift of God. That now is what it is that distinguishes authentic Christianity from all that is counterfeit. All others would have us attempt to help ourselves. All other non-reformed churches teach that, that man must help himself, or at least man must at least cooperate with Christ in saving himself. But, but, but that self-help psychology, or if you will, the steps taught us to becoming whole and well are products of secular thought they are products of man's mind as a direct consequent of our sinful condition (coughs) contemporary Christianity sees man in his anxiety modern Christianity sees man in his misery and says to him friend why are you so anxious Christ died for sinners and you are a sinner, don't you see? So therefore you must believe that your sins are removed. You can overcome this anxiety. If only you will believe that. It's as logical as two plus two equals four. But such a presentation is not the gospel. After hearing such advice, <coughs> <coughs> after hearing such advice, The man may indeed take the necessary steps to relieve himself, but he will also deceive himself, and he will still open his eyes in hell. You see, the mystery that needs to be revealed to us needs to be revealed from heaven. What is it that needs to be revealed? Well, just this, that Christ has descended from heaven into the very depths, the deepest pit, of my sin and misery. In fact, he descended into the very depths of hell. There on Golgotha, in the epitome of hell, he bore in my place, in your place, he bore the wrath and the anger of God in order that my sin and misery would be removed and that I would now be justified in the sight of God. I can't follow any program or even any systematic theology, any dogmatics in order to find peace and comfort. No. He, my faithful Savior, who we heard about last week, Jesus Christ, he descended into hell in order to relieve and release me of that burden the mystery of the gospel and that needs to be divinely revealed to us don't you see congregation that before any man can even begin to help himself he needs to see his great need of the christ and that need can be generated only by god it's only when god first grants faith in the heart of uh, in a heart that was sealed shut in paradise Then and only then shall we see him. And we will see him then. We will see him in the manger. We will see him on the cross. We will see him in the tomb. We will see him on the clouds and we continue to see him at the right hand of his father's throne. It is only after God works in our heart that fallen men and women can and will understand the significance of Christ's suffering and his dying. It is only then that we see the all-sufficient merit of his substitutionary, vicarious atonement. It is only then that our heart is enabled to see and appropriate the grace of God that is offered us in the gospel. It is only then that you can see that the father has granted you his son in order that you would not be lost. It is only then that a man cries out along with the woman who had the flow of blood, if only I can touch his hem, if only I can touch the hem of his garment, I will be made well. It is only then, it is only there at the bottom of that pit in our own sin and misery that we will throw our arms around him in the hope and expectation that he will save us from the miry pit. That knowledge now is the comfort of which the catechism speaks. Amazing grace. I once was lost, but now am found. I've been found by him, and now I no longer belong to myself. No, I belong to him. With his precious blood, he has paid for all my sin. Not only the sin I commit every day, no, also the sin with which I was born. I once was lost because I once was sinned. But now I am found. I am whole. I have been saved. I have been born again by water and the Spirit. Christ has borne the wrath of God. God is no longer angry with me. God sees in me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees me as as if I had never sinned. What's more, He sees me as the catechism is so beautifully in another place. He sees me as if I had never sinned been sin that's the second mystery of redemption and then the final mystery becomes clear to us that of our thankfulness gratitude this mystery is just as necessary for us to know as that of sin and salvation you ask me why because because God's name is to be glorified that's the entire objective of God's saving fallen men I mentioned it to you this morning, but people got the Westminster Shorter Catechism asked in the opening salvo, not what is your comfort. It opens with, what is the chief end of man? What is his purpose? Why is man here on this earth? Why did God even create him? And the answer, Man's purpose is to glorify God. That's his whole purpose. That's why God created him. That's why he exists. Our reason for existence is that we might glorify God. And as consequence of that, we might enjoy him forever into eternity. Why did God save man? So that man could glorify God's own name. And man does that not only by speaking boldly of him, but also in his grateful obedient life and living. But again, congregation, most of contemporary Christianity and all of mainline liberal churches, they've got it all wrong. They will tell you that holiness is something you can train yourself to do. Teach a man to live the Ten Commandments. Teach him to live the Sermon on the Mount and his life will be pleasing to God. But according to the Bible, living thankful, obedient lives is not something about which you and I can buy a book and learn through a book of self-help. No, the Bible says Christ has to be given us not only for justification to be made right with God, he's been given us also for our sanctification. Big words, but all that it means that Christ was given us not only to remove God's anger, as we've learned, but he was also given us to make us holy. Christ then has to be actively present before the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount can profit anything to anyone. Reflect on that with me for a moment. The truth of that statement and its implications are significant. Christ has been given us for our sanctification. Understand this with me. For what it means is you cannot come to know Christ unless he is first given to you by God. And equally serious, if you do not know yourself to be driven to an ever greater obedience, then you have not yet received Christ. Follow this with me. It's crucial that you know and understand. According to the Bible, he or she who has the Christ, truly has the Christ, has him living within their own heart, and therefore now can no longer tolerate sin in their own lives. That is now for them an impossibility, precisely because of the Christ who lives in them. How blessed, how truly blessed is he or she who lives and desires to live a life of thankful obedience to the commands of Christ. How blessed, how truly blessed for time and eternity those for whom the law of God is a great delight. Congregation Modern Christianity speaks of the steps of leading one to Christ. How impoverished their understanding of the work of God. Follow this with me for a moment. Psalm 89 talks of God creating the north wind as well as the south. And we want to pay close attention to those words and apply them in this context. When we teach of sin, salvation, and service, we may not simply declare that to be a system whereby men and women arrive at their only comfort because, first of all, because God is sovereign, a simple instruction about these three things does not ensure that faith will become evident in the hearts and lives of those whom we teach. And secondly, those who learn of these things and where faith does become a reality They will not all experience in the same way. In both areas, God is sovereign. Let me explain. When we read that God created both the cold north wind as well as the gentle, warm, southerly breezes, in the same way is he the sovereign God who determines the way of faith for each of his own. What I mean here is this. In the way of faith, there are those who are brought to faith through gentle, warm, southerly breezes. It is as if from glory to glory they wend their way to Zion. But on the other hand, we know also those who are constantly buffeted by the cold, stormy blasts of the icy northern winds. And nevertheless, we read that the new Jerusalem has 12 gates or portals, and regardless of the path charted by our Lord, all of those who, who through a diversity of life's experiences, reach those portals, all have, first of all, been made to know the house of this threefold mystery. They've been taught of God. The Spirit of God. Remember this statement for all of your life. The Spirit of God applies the Word of God to the hearts of God's elect, causing them to become new creatures in Jesus Christ. I want to repeat that. Try to commit it to your memory. It will be of great benefit for you all of your life. The Spirit of God applies the Word of God to the hearts of God's elect, causing them to become new creatures in Jesus Christ. Then finally and quickly, one final crucial element needs to be considered. Although it is indeed true that all of God's people will find those gates of heaven, albeit through many different ways on their earthly pilgrimage, there is yet only one way in which this comfort in life and death becomes their own, and that is through rebirth. Because of the fall, because of the original sin of our first parents, because we were born into that fallen race, it was said of each of us at the baptismal font that we were conceived and born in sin, worthy of all manner of misery, yea, to condemnation itself. And so each of us, and every one of us and our children with nothing more than water baptism will be eternally lost. But there is a way back, and that way is regeneration. Another big word, but it means being born again from above. Every single man, woman, and child born into the world has to be renewed through this and by, by The Spirit of Christ. Follow with me. We know from our Bibles and we confess together in the Canons of Dort that the Word of God is the seed of regeneration. Where the Spirit of Christ seeds the Word, where the Word is preached and the Gospel explained, all three parts of this mystery are made discernible by the regenerated, born-again heart. The heart that has truly understood the seriousness of their sinful and lost condition, will also already have the beginnings of the solution of the mystery of redemption in Christ, and they will also already be in possession of the knowledge and the desire of obedient grateful living. And that now is what the psalmist has recognized when we heard him crying out to God in Psalm 130. If you would mark our transgression Lord, who could stand? that sin. But with you there is forgiveness, salvation, that you may be feared, service. People of God, we've been taught great and glorious things here this afternoon. What three things must I know to live and to die in the joy of this comfort? I must know how great my sin and misery are. I must know that Christ has delivered me from death, and I must know how I am with heart and life to thank him for that deliverance. Do you know those three things? It's not an option. It's a matter of eternal life or eternal death. It's a matter of life or death for you. Think with me. Answer honestly and seriously in your own heart before God Determine once in holy honesty and earnestness if your own heart speaks yea and amen to the question God asks of us here this afternoon. Do you know that you deserve nothing more than eternal hell? Does your heart seek your redemption only in Christ? Is it the desire of your heart more and more to live for him? Those are the three things of this mystery that are necessary to know in order to live and to die happily. If the knowledge of those three things are yours personally, then it will also be your experience that your heart cries out, Lord, I know, but I know them only in such small measure. Teach me, Lord. Teach even me more and more of thy great grace. Shall we pray? Father, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how, believing in his word, wrought peace within my heart. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith within. But I know that I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day.